right. Hello, everybody. Thanks, everyone, for coming this morning. Uh, my name is Jack Shapiro. I'm the Climate and Clean Energy Director with the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Uh, NRCM is one of Maine's oldest and largest environmental groups, and we've been working for more than 60 years to protect, restore, and conserve Maine's environment. And right now, that means a big priority for us is addressing the threat of climate change, and that means bringing on new sources of clean energy like offshore wind, which is the subject of the bill we're here to talk about today. So I'm going to act as a, an MC here. Uh, we've got a great group of people here ready to share their perspectives, um, and we'll take questions afterwards. Um, we have a few materials that give some details on the bill's contents um, that uh, Colin, I believe, has, if you haven't gotten one already. Um, uh, but let's get started, and I'll start by introducing uh, the bill's sponsor and a longtime champion of clean energy, uh, the chair of the Energy, Utilities, and Technology Committee, Senator Mark Lawrence. Senator. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Jack, and, and thank you all for coming. Um, this is a very special day, and it's a personally a special day for me. Um, I previously served in the legislature about 20 years ago and sponsored a bill that created what was called the Maine Economic Improvement Fund and met a professor at the University of Maine called Habib Dagger. And he was one of the gang of five professors who convinced me to push to get more money invested by the state in research and development. And he has created an incredible offshore wind project. And we've been successful in the Energy, Utilities, and Technology Committee in pushing that project forward in each step of the process. And I'm pleased here to be here today with a wide array of groups to announce a bill to create an offshore wind industry in Maine, an industry that will strengthen Maine's economy, provide good-paying jobs for Maine people, take significant steps in reducing energy price volatility, and continue our progress in addressing climate change. Maine is already feeling the impacts of climate change. We're feeling it environmentally. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the world's oceans, and communities across Maine are seeing more frequent extreme weather. And I don't need to mention that on a day like today. Uh, but the impacts are not only on, our, uh, on the environment. They impact our dependence on fossil fuels. The energy price spikes we've seen here in electricity in Maine this past year are overwhelmingly due to our reliance on fossil fuels, particularly natural gas. Natural gas prices have grown exponentially in the last year, and they will continue to do that. The problem with having your energy policy based on fossil fuels is they're not making any more fossil fuels. And the more that's used, the more expensive what is left will get. And the advantage of offshore wind and other renewable energies is you don't have to pay for your fuels. You only have to pay for the construction of the project, and then the fuel is free after that. And we're not subject to changes in policy, uh, foreign policy. We're not subject to uh, foreign wars. We're not subject to being held hostage by companies that control fossil fuel. We have our own control of our, our fossil of our uh, electric energy future. Here's the good news. We have the opportunity this session to lay the groundwork for a new clean energy industry in Maine that will employ Maine workers and uses technology developed at the University of Maine to tap the winds in the Gulf of Maine, some of the strongest and most consistent winds in the country. And that's what Habib's project does. 
The bill builds from the work of the Maine's Offshore Wind Roadmap, which has involved a broad group of stakeholders, including from the fishing industry, the environmental industry, business communities, scientists and energy experts, organized labor and state agencies, the University of Maine, and many others led by the governor's energy office. And as you can see, there are a lot of different interests in energy. And what this bill tries to do is get them all to work together towards the goal of creating an offshore energy, offshore wind uh, procurement policy. It's clear from the work of the roadmap process, as well as experiences in other states and around the world, that the benefits of offshore wind begin with a bill like this by setting targets and a clear procurement schedule. We can catalyze interest from the private sector and spur the kind of investments needed in infrastructure, supply chain, and workforce. But we have to start early and we have to plan for it. And that's the purpose of this bill. This bill goes further. Since any offshore wind development in Maine will happen far offshore in the federal waters, this bill is Maine's chance to put our stamp on how the industry develops and get it right from the outset. That's why we're setting high standards for labor, equity, and environment right up front. The stakes are high. The need to move away from fossil fuels for climate change and economic reasons is urgent. But we must also sure that offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine is developed responsibly, using the best available data and scientific research to inform siting, construction, operations. The decision last week that will allow uh, Maine's research array to move forward is a great step in that direction. And I can't overemphasize that, that enough. That is really step three in this project. Uh, the next step, step four, is full commercialization. So we're getting closer and closer every day. I strongly believe that through a science-based approach, as provided in this bill, we can ensure that offshore wind, wildlife fishing, and other activities all coexist in the Gulf of Maine as we bring the benefits of wind power to the region. And I am not the only one who thinks so. I'm joined today by a coalition involving organized labor, climate and energy and conservation groups, and some of the students from the University of Maine who are leading the development of in, in the innovation and innovative technologies that will make this industry possible. Thank you, and I'll turn it back over to Jack. Thanks so much, Senator. Next, we have Alyssa McGlynn, a graduate research assistant at the University of Maine Advanced Structures and Composite Center. Hi, everyone. I want to say I'm really excited to be here today. Um, I'm Melissa McGlynn. I'm a graduate student at the University of Maine. I study mechanical engineering with a concentration in floating offshore wind technology and uh, scale model testing uh, innovation. Um, in short, I build and test small versions of floating offshore wind systems to ensure performance parameters and validate the designs before full-scale construction. This step is really crucial in the success of future deployments, making sure the technology is like really perfect before we make it massive. But I'm not here today to talk about the nitty-gritty bits of my research. I'm here because Maine is the place to be for this industry. It's the place to get educated on the science, and due to the abundant re wind resource off the coast, it's the place to deploy these systems. 
I'm originally from New Jersey and I came here after my undergraduate studies because I wanted to help the planet through offshore wind technology development. I came to Maine because I felt like I owed nature for all of the destructive tendencies of energy production that I learned about my classes in undergrad. In bigger picture, people are gonna keep using energy and going places and making things. And as an engineer, I want all of that to be possible and I don't wanna hurt the environment to do it. And offshore wind technology, especially in Maine, is the avenue to do that. <coughs> the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL for short, cites some of the highest wind speeds off um, the coast of Maine in the US. And the power available in wind is proportional to that velocity cubed. So we have so much wind poten potential because of our fast and steady wind speeds off the coast. And I really am so happy to get to be a part of the team that's innovating and trying to harness that energy. But renewable energy and the production of it is really complex. Industry leading engineers and world-class scientists are putting their heads together right here in Maine at the Advanced Structures and Composite Center to try to make it happen. Um, we're developing novel designs and advanced testing techniques like as we speak right now. I'm here, everybody else is in the lab, you know? <laughs> um, and this investment in offshore wind technology is an investment in the people of Maine. It's an investment in creating lasting, diverse industry jobs for Mainers, an investment for attracting students like myself to come here and study and stay here in Maine. Um, and it's also an investment in the energy security of Maine, which we should all uh, really continue on. So thank you so much. All right, thanks so much, Alyssa, and thanks for taking time out of the lab to be with us today. <laughs> uh, next, we have uh, Mitchell Kelly, uh, also from the University of Maine Advanced Structures and Composite Center and undergraduate uh, research assistant. Mitchell. Hi. So as Jack mentioned, I'm, uh, my name is Mitchell Kelly. I'm a senior mechanical engineering student at the University of Maine, and uh, I grew up just south of here in Westbrook. Uh, even before I attended the University of Maine, I would often tell friends and family about my dream to one day work as an engineer developing new renewable energy technology. Engineering would be my way of contributing towards the global climate crisis, weaning humanity off of its dependency on fossil fuels, uh, a cause that has always been consequential to me. Not long into my freshman year of college, I learned about the university's efforts in offshore floating wind turbine technology at the Advanced Structures Composite Center. Naturally, this intrigued me. It seemed like the, the perfect fit for me having an interest in renewable energy. I applied and I was lucky enough to get a, to get a job there as a student research assistant uh, in offshore wind. Uh, my, my work was primarily focused on building scale models uh, to, for the wind and wave lab, uh, or we call it the W2. Working at the ASCC throughout undergrad has been um, an invaluable experience. It's, it's given me the opportunity to contribute towards something much greater than myself. To continue my path in offshore wind, be a bigger part of the research I find so important, I applied to graduate school here in Maine. Actually, I was uh, accepted a, a citizenship this morning. Thank you. Um, so I'm specializing in offshore wind, so I'm better prepared to work in this industry. I believe in this industry. Attending College of Maine and working at the center that has developed offshore wind technology makes me and my colleagues uniquely prepared to enter this growing field. The pipeline for offshore wind is growing in Maine with programs at Maine Maritime Academy, Northern Maine Community, and Northern Maine Community College. 
more and more students like myself who are inspired by renewable energy are being educated in this state. With the potential for the nation's first research array and the world-class wind resource right off our shores, our home state of Maine has the unique and exciting opportunity to lead our country in the offshore floating wind, uh, wind industry. I think we should seize this opportunity. All right, thanks so much, Mitchell. Next, we have Sarah Haggerty, a conservation biologist with Maine Audubon. Thanks, Jack. Good morning. It's still morning, right? Um, my name is Sarah Haggerty. I'm a conservation biologist with Maine Audubon, which is Maine's oldest and largest wildlife conservation organization. For the last several years, I've focused my work on the intersection of renewable energy development and wildlife and wildlife habitats. Today, climate change is the single largest threat to Maine's wildlife, and the rapid deployment of renewable energy resources, including offshore wind, is critical to avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. But like any new development, if not responsibly sited and operated, offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine could put additional pressure on already vulnerable bird, bat, and other marine wildlife populations. As a result of extensive study by biologists here in Maine and across the region, I'm confident that offshore wind can successfully coexist with wildlife in the Gulf of Maine. This legislation we're talking about today bolsters my confidence because it includes environmental standards that will assure that offshore wind development in the Gulf of Maine is guided by Maine biologists, commercial fishing representatives, and other stakeholders who are committed to conserving the Gulf's natural resources while embracing Maine's renewable energy transition. This legislation also requires that meaningful funding from offshore wind developers flows to Maine researchers and conservation agencies. Three decades of offshore wind development in Europe has shown that offshore wind power can be responsibly sited and operated with appropriate mitigation measures to protect local wildlife and other natural resources. But here, more work still needs to be done to understand the specific mitigation strategies that will work for the Gulf of Maine. Just like similar policies in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and elsewhere, this bill directs funding to state agencies like Maine's Department of Marine Resources and Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife so that Maine-based conservation professionals can continue their work to help guide the responsible development of offshore wind in the Gulf. This bill will put Maine in the driver's seat, ensuring that the years of work undertaken by the offshore wind roadmap process the planned research array, and the work of biologists, labor organizers, and activists across the state come to fruition. If Maine doesn't take the initiative to help steer offshore wind development off our coast, someone else will. Passing this legislation is our best chance for Maine to benefit from offshore wind and to ensure that it responsibly coexists with wildlife in the Gulf of Maine. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, next, we have Jason Shedlock with the Laborers International Union of North America and president of the Maine State Building and Construction Trades Council. Jason. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I am very honored and pleased to be here uh, and a part of this coalition, um, which this is a, a representation of, uh, many more of us, committed to grow a successful, homegrown offshore wind industry uh, I want to express my deep appreciation to Senator Lawrence uh, for his leadership, his continued leadership on this. He works uh, as hard at what he does as our construction workers are um, working hard at what they do. And, you know, we're sitting in here today and our sisters and brothers uh, are outside 
um, as we're in the comforts of a warm state house, uh, building Maine. And it's, it's not lost on us the opportunities uh, that this provides. Uh, we know that no matter what form it takes, energy generation can never be truly clean if it harms workers and is built on the backs of exploited labor. It's important for us to understand that as we move forward in an industry, that we make sure that we take in consideration the Mainers current and future uh, who are going to build this industry. We also know that ensuring the rules of, of engagement uh, in this industry include labor standards uh, that is critical to Mainers across the state to benefit from not only a cleaner environment, but an opportunity for a middle class life with health benefits for themselves and their families and an even shot at retirement after career of dignity. I'm honored to be here today to stand on the shoulders of those very ind individuals who we're talking about who are working outside right now. I also stand here today in representation of not only my own union, the Laborers Local 327, but of the 20 affiliates of the Maine State Building and Construction Trades Council and over 6,000 workers across the state, uh, as well as the Maine Labor Climate Council, uh, who is a coalition of a broad range of labor unions uh, across all sectors. Um, if uh, you haven't met Francis Eanes, uh, he's sitting in the back of the room with his union printed t-shirt um, on. Uh, you should, because he is the executive director of the Maine Labor Climate Council. Um, and once you meet him, you'll know why you should know him and his passion uh, about this issue. All of the sectors that we talk about, whether they're in construction or other unions know, the very simple fact that a clean environment and a strong middle class cannot be mutually exclusive. And we're here as a coalition to represent that. To say I'm proud of the labor movement is an understatement. Uh, I myself am a product of it. And I know what it means for a family to be lifted out of poverty and earn a place squarely in the middle class. I'm also proud of what our affiliated unions are doing to address the fact that so many of Maine's construction workers look a lot like me. And they don't look like the communities in which they serve. That's why I'm very proud of the work that the union movement does to incorporate traditionally underrepresented populations, people of color, women, justice-involved folks, veterans as well, to meet them where they are and provide opportunities to earn that place in the middle class like my parents did. Working families are watching to see how this deliberative body uh, acts to this bill that Senator Lawrence is putting forth. And we want to make sure that all Mainers are included in the benefits of offshore wind. We look forward to a fulsome uh, and thoughtful process. Because to a person, when I talk to my members and the members of, of our affiliated unions, when we talk about employment opportunities around offshore wind, I get the same question. When do we start? Thank you. Thanks so much, Jason. And uh, I guess now we're ready to take any questions that folks have. We have generally gotten good support from fishermen in this project. When we bought the research rate through, we had very prolonged discussions, especially with the lobster industry. 
and we reached consensus. And that's what this bill is all about, is reaching consensus from environmentalists, people in the fishing industry, labor, and everyone up front so we can move forward. Have there been consensus on the drafting of this bill? Jack can talk to a little bit about the consulting, but we put together a group, reached out to various groups to get input in the process. Yeah. Yeah, I think one, one really important piece of context here is that this bill really drafts off the work of Maine's offshore wind roadmap process, which has been going on for about a year and a half, has had dozens of meetings. It includes an entire fisheries working group. And all of the uh, policies that are included in this bill are consistent with the recommendations that we're expecting to come out of that roadmap process. Um, this bill sets high standards not just for labor, not just for the environment, but it also generates uh, funding for research and monitoring that's gonna help us make the best decisions that we can um, for fisheries as well. Um, the other piece though that I think is important is that a lot of the concerns that, um, that we're hearing from the fishing industry have to do with siting. And this bill isn't concerned directly with siting. That's something that's happening through the federal process. Um, and BOEM, BOEM, the uh, Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, a part of the Federal Department of the Interior, they were just up here in Maine uh, last Thursday. Um, a bunch of the folks here were, were there at that meeting. Um, and, they, uh, and, and they have a series of virtual meetings directly focused on fisheries. Um, there's four of them coming up in the next week. The, the next one, or the first one is on Friday on fixed gear in Maine specifically. Um, so we share the concerns of the fishing industry to make sure that the siting is done well here. Um, but what this bill does is really lay out a clear direction for the state, for climate, for ec the economic uh, issues and benefits that can come with, uh, with offshore wind, w with the real confidence that we can address these, address these issues as those siting conversations go forward. Excuse me, can you How say? How like Well, when we think of taxpayers, it's really ratepayers uh, that we're talking about in energy. Um, everyone's seen the spike in their electric bills uh, this year that's primarily due, uh, overwhelmingly, in, in fact, entirely due to natural gas, a reliance on natural gas. This gets us away from reliance on fossil fuels as a source of producing electricity. Once we do that, we no longer have to deal with the fluctuations in oil prices and what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in, in Russia, all those other things. We now have as a fuel source the wind, the sun, and we don't pay anything for those. Just to clarify, so you're basically saying throughout this project that won't be an issue with them paying additional rates? There'll be some rate funding of these projects and there has been all along. The long-term goal is to get to a point where rates will stabilize and we won't have to pay for fossil fuels down the road. Fossil fuels are only going to increase in the future. Uh, we know that for certain. And the sooner we get away from them, the more we can stabilize our electricity prices. Correct, correct. And that's a very good point. Built into this bill is flexibility on behalf of the PUC 
to consider impact on ratepayers when doing these projects. And remember, these are goals. They're not, you know, we're not definitely going to get to them. I think the more ambitious we set the goal, the more we're going to encourage investment from the private sector in offshore wind. And that's the purpose of this bill, is to show that Maine is ready, willing, and able to produce or to procure offshore wind. So that's the stimulus of putting in there 2025. Their goals, whether or not we achieve every goal every year, remains to be seen. And a lot depends upon the rates and the price flexibility. You just mentioned private capital, so I'm confused about a couple things. One is, are you not suggesting or proposing yet that state funds will go toward this goal of building whatever's going to be built offshore? And secondly, can you translate kilowatt hours <laughs> and 980,000 homes being powered? How many windmills would that take? Because we're talking beyond the 12, right, that's already approved, that Bowman's approved, that Jason Dean's in a bill. So for the last part, I'm going to get one of the brilliant scientists from the University of Maine to answer that, because they're going to be able to tell you what a project of 400 uh, towers, uh, wind towers, would be able to produce. But we're talking, uh, if you have these projects, the power that would essentially be produced by a nuclear power plant. That's the magnitude of the power we're talking about from the Gulf of Maine. It is huge. So I'll give them a chance to do their mental calculation, and I'll answer your first part of your question about the private investment. Um, the private investment, first of all, these projects, when they come to fruition, are going to be done by private investment. And they're going to be in conjunction with the University of Maine. They're essentially using the patented pro uh, projects from the University of Maine and commercializing them. So that's going to be done through private investment. But money is going to be coming back to the university system to invest in further research projects. So did you just say 400 towers? I might have missed I think. Uh, a commercial array, if I remember Habib once, he said you could do a commercial array of 400 towers, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> I'm going to let the science people. <laughs> 400 towers in 12 years is the goal, to have the equivalent of a nuclear power plant offshore. That's what you're saying. Um, I'm not sure if that one would be equivalent of a nuclear power plant. They're going to answer that. But a commercial array, I believe, was it 400 towers, or how many was in a commercial array? I think what... The, uh, the one thing that is that's that's really important to understand is that I'm, I think, yeah yeah sorry yeah. one thing that's really important to understand is that we're talking about the commercial scale development of offshore wind. So first we're going to be building the demonstration project off of Montegan Island. That's one tower. The research array is twelve towers. The federal government is going to be doing their lease sale uh, if it's on schedule in late 2024, right? And that's why we had the first procurement set up in 2020. But the development timelines for these uh, for these arrays are seven, eight years. We're seeing that elsewhere in the uh, across the eastern seaboard, right? So by the time these projects are coming to fruition, the the you get a, a lot more efficiencies out of a bigger tower, for example, which means you can generate the same amount of energy with fewer turbines. So if I were to tell you today how many turbines would meet a certain megawatt hour by the by or certain amount of megawatts, by the time we end up approving those projects, going through all the various different uh, 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 rounds of, of feedback and, uh, and evaluation, then it could, be a, it could be a different number. So it's not quite as easy to pin down as, as, uh, as to say it's this many, you know, it's this many hundred uh, uh, towers. But you're talking about potentially hundreds. That's yeah. That's 
talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's right, across the, the, the whole Gulf of Maine. And Senator, I'm not sure you answered yeah. my question about public funding. Is there no fiscal note attached to this bill? I'm um, I don't know if, is there going to be a fiscal note? This is paid not, when you talk a fiscal note, that's general fund money. Yeah. Energy projects are paid through ratepayers, so they don't have the same type of fiscal note going into it. So, for example, the research array had a rate that was going to be paid to the uh, procurement of that energy from the research array in order to pay for the development of the research array. The idea with the commercialized project is they essentially go into the free market and compete with all other sources of energy. To answer your question, I think um, I'm going to get you to the people the University of Maine to give you a specific answer. I don't think they know at this point. And it all depends upon the size of the lease that's granted by BOEM. That will determine the number of turbines that can get in there. Habib has given us several examples, but I would rather you get you know, the exact number from somebody who's much more intelligent. I just have another question, but the, the yeah. science is made in Maine. We understand that a lot of this technology has been developed in Maine since two yeah. years ago. That's fine. But as I recall, the research array is to be built and controlled by foreign companies. Uh, I came up with a Dutch company and Mitsubishi. And I've already heard concerns, I'm sure you have as well, from Congressman Golden and others, that foreign companies could control our resource. How do you respond to that, and how will you I don't think that's the case in the research array. We were very careful on how we crafted that bill. It's very carefully controlled both with the federal government and the state government. So it's not a question of foreign entities um, controlling our energy. Um, the PUC set up a procurement process for that energy, so we have control over that within the state of Maine. I guess another way of asking is, are there American companies that actually exist who can work with our construction people and build what you're proposing to? I hope so. I really hope so. And I, and I think, you know, when you go through the competitive bid process, you're going to see a lot of people coming in. One of the goals of this bill is whoever it is, it, one of the goals of what we've been doing with Offshore Wind is whoever it is, we want it to build, be built with Maine labor, Maine trained labor, union labor. But who's going to own it? You run into the same problem that the quarter had with C&P and foreign ownership and all those concerns. I mean, don't you at least have told us that's a minefield if, if you don't have American Well, we don't have control in the state of Maine over saying who owns these projects. These are out in federal waters. They go through a federal process. There's a bidding process, so we don't have control over that. So it's possible European and Japanese, I'm trying to like some xenophobic looking man here, but people have that concern that this tremendous resource that we're trying to launch today will ultimately be controlled by foreign companies. You're the one that said we don't want to be held hostage to wars and, and, and companies, but might that in fact be well, as I said, this, this is not something the state of Maine has control over. But I will make one point. There are only four development projects in the world of offshore wind. Three of them are in Europe. University of Maine is the only one in this country developing it. And that's why we want to promote this, because it's Maine technology. And in fact, it's better technology, because we use the floating concrete platforms um, and I think many of these European countries are afraid of our success because it's going to be more economical to use the University of Maine patents than it will be the European patents. How would a project like this um, bring more diversity to the state of Maine? I understand someone spoke about bringing more diversity in construction workers, in people of color, people who are women. 
Are we changing how we're finding these employees as far as recruiting goes? Do, do you want to speak to that, Jason? Yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate the question. Uh, the short answer is yes. We are changing on uh, how we're going about engaging with uh, populations that uh, we should be engaging. Um, as, you know, obviously, it's the right thing to do. Uh, we have pre-apprenticeship programs that recruit specifically uh, within communities uh, that may not necessarily think, well, construction is going to be my first uh, foray into work, or individuals who come here um, and join us from other countries who have skills uh, that are transferable. Well, we have programs in place uh, that make sure that those individuals, whether they're uh, they, they first seen a hammer, but they're interested in it, or someone who have, have the skills but don't have a, a frostwalk of those credentials. We want to make sure that we're working within communities and recruiting those individuals. Because I will say, we talk about the number of uh, structures, um, that's a lot of work. And uh, you know, if, if we think we're just going to do it with the current people uh, that we have in the state, uh, we're going to fail. And the reason why that the union movement has been working so hard uh, on recruitment is because we know we have to grow uh, you know, our workforce. And we grow it in concentric circles, right? The local individuals we uh, recruit from, uh, and then the region. And then we want to make sure when we have individuals who've come from uh, you know, other states to work on offshore wind, uh, people are going to uh, understand that Maine is a destination to work on these types of projects. And I will say that when, you, when we engage a broad, um, uh, diverse uh, you know, swath of individuals, it's not like that these individuals are going to get trained and they're going to build a windmill and then go back and you know, work in whatever job that they're in. They're earning uh, the skills that they need to be productive members of our construction community because we know Maine is an aging state. The construction industry is not immune to that. So this industry is actually going to be uh, a catalyst to make sure that uh, Maine workers, and oh, by the way, Maine workers with good benefits and a good shot at retirement, uh, have a chance to benefit and catalyze their career starting with offshore wind uh, and pivoting towards working on the state house or building a hospital or a school in their own community. And that includes those individuals that you spoke about uh, that we're working very hard uh, to engage um, and make sure or feel welcome uh, and empowered in the construction community. Um, it, it, I don't know if we have a catchy name for it. Um, it's our, it's our, uh, you know, some people call it a building pathways pre-apprenticeship program. Uh, basically, what we're doing, and we're staffing up as we speak, um, uh, due to the credit of uh, the Mills administration uh, and the Biden administration, we received some funding specifically to train uh, and reach out to individuals uh, in these populations. And City of Portland is certainly a target. Uh, the Lewis and Auburn area is certainly a target. The Bangor area is certainly a target. Uh, and this is, this is a pilot program that we'll be running for a number of years. And we know that success breeds success. And it's something that we absolutely uh, intend to succeed on and we will not fail. Uh, because we have no choice uh, at this point. Uh, oh, and, and oh, by the way, it is the right thing to do. But, but yes, you know, we have uh, opportunities to uh, have nodes of these trainings throughout the state to start and then build on that. 
if I might just add one, one other thing, specifically included in the, in the bill and in the procurement process that we've laid out is a requirement for any company that bids into, uh, it bids into the, or bids against the solicitation, that they include a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, plan. And that will be evaluated as part of the bid selections. So um, that's, a, I think, a really key mechanism that we've laid out, um, similar to ones that have been used in other states, but really to make sure that we're setting these high standards from the very beginning and that it's not an afterthought. And, and further, the reason why we've set out the schedule of procurements in the way that we've done it is that we don't want to have a boom and bust for offshore wind, where there's a giant project that gets constructed, everyone has to get hired, there's all these impacts um, and, and needs, and then those people can't continue to work in the industry. If we're building a, a commercial offshore, offshore wind, as we've contemplated in this bill, we're looking at a pipeline of projects stretching out to 2040. Um, and that's gonna provide people with the opportunity to not just get trained, but work in those uh, areas for a good chunk of their careers, and and frankly, probably beyond that. Jack, the uh, information talked about potentially 980,000 homes worth of power, right? So that's, that's more homes than there are in Maine, right? It that's, is today, yeah. It is today. Obviously, when all these workers come to build this, the population will grow. But is the goal that Maine could actually be an exporter of energy as a result of this project? Potentially, this potentially. I think the other important thing um, with uh, to, to consider in thinking about that math is that we're in the process as laid out in Maine's Climate Action Plan um, and as laid out in the Federal Inflation Reduction Act and all the things we need to do as a, as a globally, as a country, as a state to address climate change and shift away from fossil fuels, that we're gonna have a growing uh, electricity demand as we electrify transportation, as we electrify heating. And so that number of homes, the sort of average electricity use per home is really gonna grow um, as as we replace those expensive fossil fuels, the, the expensive and dirty fossil fuels with more affordable and clean energy. So I think w we'll see, but those, those numbers are gonna change the, uh, um, as, we, as we go forward with electrification as laid out in Maine's Climate Action Plan. Could someone talk about sort of the difference between Maine's floating platform and, and some of the current ones being used now? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to take that? <laughs> yes. Oh, we're excited. Here we go. This is a question I can answer for you guys. So a lot of the systems that they have in Europe are actually uh, monopile foundations. So the turbine is connected to the soil underneath the water. We don't have good sea conditions for that because our water is much too deep in the areas with high usable wind. So we can't just drill into the seafloor there. It's 100 meters down in some places. It's like building a skyscraper and then putting a massive pole and then putting like the biggest washing machine ever on top <laughs> to spin around. It's really unfeasible. But when you have a floating hull, it more so mimics what's happening in um, sort of like the floating platforms to drill oil, where you have a floating hull with your turbine and your tower on top. And it's much more affordable as the water gets deeper to have something that floats because you're actually building something smaller or the same size, but then mooring lines uh, holding it in for spacing keeping. So in Europe, they use fixed bottom, where here we're really looking for uh, floating offshore wind. So and how popular wind, you talked about high wind speeds, what's the average wind speed we're talking about? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, NREL is like a spectacular resource for uh, wind velocities, and they do a lot of resource 
um, like quantification and measurement all over the United States. What size turbines are you looking at? The magnification of turbine size is, it's like multiplying super fast. So some of our reference turbines are only five or 10 megawatts, but we have plans for 20 and 24 megawatt systems that are in the development phase. So that has a lot to do with um, the lease quality. So if you have a very small space, you might want to put um, larger turbines. That's very uh, space dependent, like lease are space dependent. Are you able to have a platform that will scale this to a megawatt? Yeah. Scale. It's all about just scaling things up and reevaluating the uh, forcing of the wave and wind. Just for an idea. I, I can't speak to that right now, sorry. I mean, uh, the, like the GE Tower is blades of, what, I mean, is it 240 meter diameter? For the Halide? Yeah. I can provide my contact information, and if anybody has any super technical questions, I manage communications in the ASCC. I'm happy to take contact with Dr. Habib Jabber, who can talk to some of these much more technical, because scaling up the turbines does not go, it's not, it's not a linear process of scaling up. Um, especially as technology differs as platforms can get smaller and different materials that is very dependent. So for the very technical questions, I'm happy to connect you today um, with Dr. Dabber or, or Jake Ford here on top that and they can net that out themselves. What does Berkeley look like before you come to the state? I, I know we're wrapping up, but can you just speak to, we said a little bit earlier about how this, this project could potentially bring um, younger folks like yourself to Maine and how other people are interested in coming to Maine for any innovative products or projects like this? Uh, yeah, a lot of peers in the graduate student uh, department we are all funded researchers and there's quite a few of us from out of state and the excitement building for engineering careers in renewable energy in my age group is massive so we're really seeing people come in uh, to work on those kinds of problems all right we we only have the room till 12 30 so that's all the time that we have but i'm sure many of us would be happy to speak afterwards um, thanks everyone so much for uh, for coming today. Thank you.